It is a joy to be an elder and a pastor at a local church, and it is a particular joy to be that here at Tri-Cities Baptist Church. It's a neat thing. I get to celebrate lives changed, redeemed, lived for Jesus, even lives that are called home to an eternity with him. It's a, it's a blessing and a really neat thing to be able to do that. And um, Speaking of that, one thing I, I just want to take a minute. I, I noticed this and kind of got to celebrate this as a staff and with one of the people in our, or one of the families in our church. But I want you to know this week the Harrises celebrated 60 years of marriage. Will you just show them some love for 60 years of marriage? <laughs> 60 years of marriage. What a blessing it is to be able to gather together as a local body and look to one another. And to be able to look to a couple who's held it together and honored marriage and honored the Lord for 60 years. That's just an exciting thing. So as a pastor, you get to celebrate in all these kinds of things. But very honestly, I want you to also know that it can be hard. It can just be really hard. And it's difficult. And this morning we continue our study of Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired letter to Timothy. We've been journeying through Timothy. I haven't been able to be here very much with you through this journey. It's good to be here. I've been investing and teaching some champions through our family discipleship plan on Sundays and Wednesdays. It's such an important thing for our church. We wanted to be there with as much as we could to come alongside of those parents, side those leaders, and help them. And so I'm excited to be here this morning with you. Again, I get to kind of come back into the series, but I want to remind you that Timothy is a bold, spiritually mature young pastor serving in Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus had her struggles, which we've been hearing about. It's not always been easy. And so Paul is writing to Timothy and encouraging a young pastor how to lead and shepherd a church. And Paul understood something that I think we all identify to with, that no church will really rise beyond its leadership. It's just a reality. And so it's no surprise that much of Paul's focus in this letter to Timothy has concerned leadership. The leadership of the church. The leadership that God had ordained and given authority to, to shepherd and to guide and to oversee and to teach and disciple his children. And in summary, I think we found out it's hard. It's hard. They were struggling to do it right. The qualifications are great. The spiritual battle and pressure is just tremendous. It's just hard. I remember telling my grandmother years ago that I was going to be a pastor. That God had called me and set me apart for this this journey. And I remember her reaction. She said, well... You've chosen the hardest job in the world. She said, it would be, I'll never forget it. She said, it would be easier to be the president. Now listen, I always disagreed with that. I always thought it would be true up until this election. I think it might be easier to become the president. (laughs) Which, by the way, one of the neat things, come back next week And we're going to continue to have those kind of monthly elder roundtables, those elder discussions. And we're going to take just a few minutes and look at God's word with our elders collectively about government and about our election and how those things work together. So don't miss that. Be back here next week for that. 
But serving in ministry is hard. There was a conversation between a doctor and a pastor, and the doctor is kind of lamenting the pressures of his job, and he says, listen, pastor, I feel the burden and the stress of caring for people's lives. I'm responsible for their lives. And the pastor looked back and he said, Doctor, I'll just be honest. I feel the burden and the stress and the responsibility of caring for people's souls. And there's just this understanding that it's hard. Jeff Palmer is used to me telling him, Jeff, you're my hero. Jeff had spent his life, for the most part, working in a, just a secular context. And after years and years and years in that setting, answered God's call to go into ministry full-time and become a pastor and elder here at Tri-Cities Baptist Church. That was just a little over four years ago. A few weeks ago, Jeff and I were on a plane. We're on our way to Tanzania to, to teach uh, some, some pastors and, and work at a seminary there. And on the way, I asked Jeff, I said, Jeff, four years in, what would be your biggest takeaway? Without hesitation, Jeff goes, it's so much harder than I thought it was. So much harder than I thought it was. It's difficult. It's a hard thing. And so what I want us to do is I want us to set up 1 Timothy chapter 5 and this back portion where it's going to talk about the church's response to elder leadership. And I want to do so just by giving us a little bit of a connection to the burden that your elders and your pastors feel it's not necessarily i don't want to try to proclaim or prescribe something from the word of god i just want you to let you know to the tensions that are there some by the way are just anchored into our very sin nature some are anchored into the responsibility and the calling directly from scripture but let me just lay out a few of these to help get our mind around the office and the responsibility of being an elder or pastor First, the elder or pastor, they must be exemplary, and yet, at the same time, they are sinful. Think about it this way. Paul said, be imitators of me. He is also the same man that said, I am the chief of sinners. I want you to understand how leadership, internally, the conflict you feel. Never do I feel, never do I feel qualified to proclaim the word of God I always feel broken I always feel inadequate and yet I am responsible for doing that very thing and not only that but doing it in such a way that I say be an imitator of me your elders are set to be examples and yet they are sinful and they must internally deal with that tension second they face increased spiritual warfare Their battle is not a battle of just flesh and blood. Their battle is a battle against spiritual forces that are strong, that seek to devour our church. Third, they proclaim truth that is counter to everyone's culture. To everyone's culture. If they do it well, it is anyway. That means if they will rightly proclaim the word of God to you and to me and to the world, it will go against the worldview of the audience that they hear. That is true for all of us because there is discipline and admonishment given to the responsibility of the elder or pastor. They must discipline and correct and admonish. Listen, they must encourage suffering and persecution. 
Paul writes to Timothy and he says, anyone who desires to live a godly life will, promise, will face persecution. They will encourage you to share the gospel in such a way that it might cause you one day to lose your job, to lose a friend, to be so about the mission that you lose your vacation because instead of spending your money on the vacation, you send it on the mission field. They will challenge you to lose your very life because when they open the pages of Scripture, they see Jesus say, those who lose their life for my sake will find eternal life. But those who try to hold on to their life, they will lose it. Listen, they will tell you hard things. And they will lead you to places of suffering. And pastors and elders, listen, who stand in front of their churches and just proclaim wonderful blessings from the Lord and no suffering and no persecution, they are failing at their very calling. They're wrong. And so we're beginning to see just this tension of what it must mean. And they also, by the way, call people to repentance, to submission. Repentance in our day and in our culture is seen as foolishness. Even Scripture says the gospel to those who do not believe is foolishness. And yet, that is what they proclaim. They will call the church to submit to the authority that God has given them and the authority of God's Word. And culturally, this is so hard because in the U.S., we have such an independent worldview. And we struggle, I mean, we struggle to accept corporate authority. And yet the Bible has called the church to submit to authority. And the tension that is in that And how that must feel. In our culture, we grumble against authority. We instead say we're going to go our own way. We have views of tolerance and humility that suggest we cannot know absolute truth. And who are you or who is any elder to stand in front of us and pretend that somehow you have cornered what is true? And so instead, I will be best to discern my own truth. And those partial truths and those, those um, ripped fabrics within an independent worldview, yes, we are set free in Christ Jesus. Yes, we no longer have the need to go through a priest. But God has still established the responsibility of oversight and authority within the church through the elder. And so the elder is sitting here calling for repentance and calling for submission and setting the direction of the church, a thing that he will stand accountable to in front of God himself. And yet, our culture rejects such corporate authority and champions such individualism. And the balance and the tension of that is so difficult. Standing on God's word is relationally costly. It always has been, and it brings persecution. Yet the elder or the pastor must pick up the torch of God's word and lead into and through the darkness, calling others to follow. I recently was reminded of a sermon from Martin Luther during the Reformation. It's so good. I, I, 
at that time, during the Reformation, the Word of God had begun to be printed and was beginning to be translated and read and known. And yet, the Catholic Church had set up so many traditional practices based on um, church authority, not Bible authority, and there was becoming a divide. And people like Martin Luther were saying, listen, some of the things that the church is telling you is not true according to Scripture. We must stand on the Word of God. And there was beginning to be a tension. And during this time, there was much persecution in which the church was persecuting the saints who were leading this Reformation. They were killing many of them. There were wars that were fought. It was brutal. That's the context. And Martin Luther said this, The world at the present time is discussing how to quell the controversy and strife over doctrine and faith. And how to effect a compromise between the church and the papacy. Let the learned, the wise, it is said, bishops, emperor, prince, arbitrate. In other words, let them come together. Let's talk about it. Let's find a compromise. He went on to say, each side can easily yield something. It is better to concede some things which can be construed according to individual interpretation than that so much persecution, bloodshed, war, and terrible endless dissension and destruction be permitted. This was the voice of the culture. Chill. Compromise. Find a middle. People are dying. People are losing their life. There's great persecution. There's no need to be so disunified. Chill. Here was his response. Here is lack of understanding. For understanding proves by the word that such patchwork is not according to God's will, but that doctrine, faith, and worship must be uh, preserved pure and unadulterated. There must be no mingling with human nonsense, human opinions, or wisdom. The Scripture gives us this rule. We must obey God rather than men. I want you to think of the weight behind such a statement. People are losing their lives. And Luther says, I can't help it. He says the same things that Peter and John says in Acts chapter 4. What I have seen and heard in Jesus, I cannot help but proclaim it. It has changed me. This is my calling. And whatever it costs, I will stand on the word of God. And both people inside and outside the church would question such a statement. That is a hard thing to champion and a weight and a burden. Another thing to think about with your elders and pastors, their pride, the pride that I have as a pastor, as an elder, and the church's immaturity and pride constantly push them to go it alone. To go it alone. To ignore the plurality in which Scripture speaks to, and to think that somehow, some way, that I, the messenger, am important 
the church that somehow celebrates a pastor or the pastor of their preference and elevates them and somehow if I can just hang out with them, if I can connect with them, I mean, they're in touch so much more. This creates such a problem, such a temptation. And finally, one of the things that I think we can understand is our pastors and our elders, they bear burdens and celebrations of their flock constantly. I've often said as, as, a, as just a person who goes through life, we will usually experience about ten huge moments, life-changing moments that are just devastating and painful. For you, circle of influence, that's a few. When there is a church of a thousand people and you walk alongside of them, every week you are walking alongside of someone who's fighting for their family, who's just lost an unsaved mother or father, child. You walk through the most difficult things with people. And yet at the same time, in the same week, right after you've had one meeting where you've wept with a spouse who just found out their beloved has committed adultery. Five minutes later, a parent will walk in with their child beaming, smiling from ear to ear, filled with joy because that child just came to know Jesus. Can you understand the emotion of some of that? That's hard. It's just hard. And so as we go into 1 Timothy, I've got to give you a disclaimer. It's almost 20 years of ministry, I have become accustomed to preaching and teaching God's Word and saying hard things. And honestly, it has become easier to say confrontational things and harder things than it is to say things that have personal implication. And I want you to know something. As we look in this text, I'm going to do the best I can to just hide behind the Scripture. Because in your mind, and in my mind, we will not help but realize, as we proclaim and teach through this text, it would appear as if there is, um, well, self-interest. <laughs> All right? I promise you that is not our motive. One of the things that I love about our church is that we preach through books of the Bible, and it causes us to take each verse, each text, and deal with those things. And so that's what we're doing this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure 
No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to the judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. I want to walk us through a bunch of points. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to teach a little bit more than I'm going to preach this morning. Um, It's just easier to go through section by section, I think, that way. And so I've got a lot of points. We're going to go through them quickly. These points are countercultural observations concerning elder leadership. Every one of these, I think, kind of pushes to a natural worldview that we bring to the text. They kind of fight against certain things. We'll see that personally. So they're going to be a little countercultural, sometimes even greatly opposed to the, to the traditions that we have even in our own church history and our own church background. First, I want you to notice that Paul says elders, affirming more than one. He says, elders, which affirms more than one. Verse 17, let the elders. This is common in the New Testament because in the New Testament, elders in a plurality is always what is affirmed. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 1, so I exhort the elders, plural, among you. In Acts chapter 20, verse 17, they called the elders, plural, of the church. Acts 14.23, appointed elders, plural, for them in each church. 1 Timothy 1.5, appointed elders, plural, in every town. This time there's a church in a town. Sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Again in Acts 20.17. Elders. Listen, the celebration... An elevation of the senior pastor is one of the greatest weaknesses in the U.S. church. It just is. And listen, there's nothing wrong with the title. There's nothing wrong with having a primary preaching pastor or different roles, etc. That's not my point. But when the church is led to think that one is primary, They have set themselves up outside of the model of Scripture and in a place that's going to create many hurdles for the church. We don't see any of that in Scripture. And so when I say these are countercultural, you can see how many churches do you know that do not affirm in one way, shape, or form a primary, a senior, a guy at the top elder pastor, whatever they want to call them. Even if someone comes up to you and they say, who is the the pastor of Tri-Cities Baptist Church? How do you answer that question? And see, we don't find any of that anywhere in Scripture that way. And that's a tension for us. And it ought to at least give us some degree of pause that this thought that we have of an elevated leader who sits above all the other leaders is nowhere to be found in the, or found in the New Testament. And so, right off the bat, there is a controversial statement that it's elders. And I want to just affirm something. Charles Chandler, David Brewer, Larry Durham, they're lay elders at our church. It means 
They're not vocationally spending all of their time working here. They're not earning a living here. Listen, I want you to know something. They are called and given the same authority, the same calling as myself, as Mike, as Gene. Just the same. Gene, who's spent his life serving the church as a faithful pastor and elder on staff, but never having a primary preaching or teaching role in the church, has just as much authority and just as much calling, worth, and value as an elder. And so what we see is elders is communicated as a plurality in Scripture. Second thing we see, elders are worthy of honor. They're worthy of honor. The honor here that I'm talking about is considered, um, it's implied. It's just implied. Say, where do you see that? Well, when you realize that honor is communicated later in the verse within the clause, especially those, and then you realize here, double honor, well, somebody gets single honor, is what I'm trying to say. Right? If these people get twice as much, somebody's there getting some honor. The fact is, if you're an elder, you are worthy of honor. That's a neat thought. Honor here in this passage, as that word is used throughout the New Testament, kind of has a twofold meaning. One, it's a reverence. It is a respect, and it is also a provision. It speaks regardless of function or giftedness or age or relationship. See, listen, if there is an elder who is unworthy of honor, listen, he is unworthy of being an elder. He's disqualified. And so when we talk about reverence, we recognize that there is a respect, a submission. And again, that will go against our cultural individualism because it will push back at such a corporate authority. There's also a sense of provision that is included in this word honoring and is reinforced throughout the New Testament. It includes some degree of wages. That's why Paul goes on in verse 18. And he quotes two different passages there. And this is neat. I want to chase a rabbit as I pull this out. Paul generalizes two passages. In other words, these two passages, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. The laborer deserves his wages. Is not prescriptive to the office of an elder. So he takes these two principles in Scripture and he generalizes them and applies them to the office of an elder. The reason I want you to note that is because that is a very dangerous practice for you and I to do. Paul happens to be in a little bit different situation than you and I. Paul is an apostle. And so when Paul generalizes this through the authority of the Holy Scripture, watch this, it becomes prescriptive. But you and I do not have apostolic authority. We are not inspired by the Holy Spirit as we take God's word and proclaim it out to take a generalization and just apply it to something. We must trust in God's word to interpret God's word. And so when we look at this, we see Paul do a really neat thing with Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 4, which is about the ox. And then Luke 10 verse 7, which is about the laborer who deserves his wages. Another interesting thought that's happening right here that I don't want you to miss. Paul is quoting the New Testament. The Gospels is the Word of God. 
That's really neat, isn't it? The Gospels, Paul is holding them up, understanding that this is the Word of God, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, as he quotes Luke. It's a really, really neat thing. And so I just want to pause in the midst of all of that and that description to say on behalf of our pastors and our elders, thank you. Thank you. You honor us well. You honor us so well. Both in your respect, your submission, and in your provision for us. We are not in need You are a blessing to us and our families, and genuinely let me say on behalf of all of them, thank you. Thank you. And so, elders are worthy of honor. Third, elders who serve exceptionally well, especially those who proclaim God's word, are worthy of double honor. Double honor. Verse 17, it says, those who rule, elders are the overseers of the flock. Oftentimes in the Bible Belt, we hold up this idea of shepherding. But that shepherding role that we like to talk about, I think, so much, is more often a role that is set aside to the deacon than to the pastor or the elder. And by the way, as I use these terms, pastor and elder, interchangeably understand that's what happens in Scripture as well. The overseer, the pastor, the elder, the bishop, whatever you're translating. It's the same term, the same office. See, the pastor the elder the rule here is oversight towards the mutual edification of the body through the proclamation of God's word that is the primary responsibility of the shepherd elder the shepherd pastor it is through teaching and preaching and prayer and leadership and encouragement and admonishment And here Paul points that out. He acknowledges that those who oversee, those who lead are worthy of honor, but those who do it very well, exceptionally well, which by the way could be any elder, worthy of double honor. Especially those, especially those who proclaim God's word. He uses the terms preaching and teaching. Throughout the New Testament, sometimes they're used together to communicate a slight difference. Sometimes they're just used interchangeably. But the subtle difference is in the preaching is for a calling to repentance. It's a preaching, the proclamation of the gospel that would call you to repentance. The teaching is the proclamation and explanation of God's word. Very, very similar, oftentimes overlapping in and throughout. But the one who preaches and teaches is worthy of double honor. Number four, elders labor. They labor. Verse 18, who labor. Verse 17, the laborer deserves his wages. Being a faithful elder is work. It's work. It's hard work. It's a lot of mental energy of study and thought. It requires discipline to pray, to set personal sacrifice. It is emotional. It is a roller coaster. Listen, it's life. It is not a job. It's life. And the church can make their job a joy or a misery. That's not just me saying that, by the way. That's in Scripture, and Hebrews will come back to that in a little bit. But the church can make their job a joy, or they can make it miserable and hard. 
An illustration that kind of helps capture that, a friend of mine tells me the story. He was out to dinner with his wife, and he said, Sweetie, what's the favorite part of a normal day for you? She thought for a minute. She said, oh, it's easy. It's when you come home. I mean, the kids can be a mess. It can be an incredibly frustrating day. But when you come back in the home and you're joyful and you're smiling and you're playing with the kids, immediately the whole tone and energy of our home changes. And he thought, man, that's pretty good. I'm doing awesome. And so he felt pretty good about himself. So he thought he would contrast it with the worst. So he said, so what's the least favorite part of a normal day for you? She thought for a minute. She said, when you come home. He said, I didn't quite get it. I mean, so he said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, listen, just as much as you can bring our whole family up when you come home with joy and love, when you come home frustrated and angry and mad, you bring us all down. And in a very similar way, so it is with the church. When the church is grumbling and backbiting and ununified and not submissive with a low view of Scripture and is self-focused, listen, it's hard. And yet when the church is honoring and loving and kind and maturing, pursuing God's Word, submissive, sharing Jesus, listen, it is the most joyful experience that you can have. And I remind those of you who are here who are elders or pastors in our church or may be sensing a calling. You are responsible to faithfulness, not a result. You are responsible for the proclamation, not a result. You may very well be a Jeremiah who preaches repentance your whole life, never to see repentance. And only ridicule and persecution. And yet, your faithfulness is what you will be measured by. Fifth, criticism of an elder requires substantiated evidence. He says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three in verse 19. Everyone recognizes leaders will be criticized fairly and unfairly. And how much more so true in something that has such a spiritual battle to it. The church is not exempt from biased and ignorant. I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean that in an unknowing way. Ignorant criticism. Nor is the elder above rebuke. They sin. I sin. It happens. And unfortunately, sometimes it happens horribly, horribly inappropriately to their calling and there are usually three types of criticism and these would apply to the context of the elder as well verse 19 will deal with the first two verse 20 will deal with the third the first one is misunderstandings and distrust the second is malicious lies and gossip and the third is valid and substantiated criticism correction first misunderstanding happens uh Less, and let me speak to it this way so I understand, less in the context of a family. Because in the family context, you more often than not trust that person in your family. You give them the benefit of the doubt. And so trust is a huge thing in the context of our relationship with our elders. 
I'll give you an example. Pastor Mike is walking into the church. I, by the way, I don't know if this has ever happened, so if you feel like I'm talking about you, I'm not. Um, Pastor Mike's walking in the church. He just bumps into uh, a family who just gives him incredibly devastating news. He takes about 10 more steps, comes through a door, and there's somebody, and they go to stick out their hand to shake Mike's hand, and Mike is zoned out. He's just, he's just trying to process what he just heard, and he doesn't even notice that your hand is stuck out to shake your hand, and he walks right by you. How you respond to that is kind of what I'm talking about. Some can say, well, Mike doesn't like me, he shunned me, and he, just, he doesn't care about us. And that can be your perception of that moment. In these things, our elders, myself, we will say things the way we don't mean to say them. We will make honest mistakes. We will miss things. And they can create misunderstanding. And create tension and trust. Be sincere. Give your elders and pastors trust as part of honoring them. And understand that if the church has appointed those men and they have gone through that process, the reality is you are prescribed, you are told, commanded to give them that trust. David Brewer, for example, is not personally responsible to earn every individual person's trust. The corporate authority of the church and the word of God that sets him up as an elder should count as trust for you. I know that, again, is against our culture, but that's how it should work. And in that setting, we serve one another better. But misunderstandings can lead to hurt or frustrated people who will become malicious. And lies and gossip become nonsensical. With these in mind, Paul says, No charge against an elder without substantiated evidence. It literally means to turn a deaf ear to. At Tri-Cities, listen, we live in a culture around us here, East Tennessee, that is a grumbling, gossiping, kind of backbiting culture. And I do not need to explain to you how, it, how you need to apply this of turning a deaf ear, but I want to say this. I'm praying for you because I know it's hard. Because I know in the circle of your friends, when someone begins to criticize one of our elders and say things, and they're kind of pushing the envelope there for you to walk away, for you to turn a deaf ear, for you to offer loving admonishment and correction, listen, will not be warmly received. And I want you to know I'm praying for you in that. I always pray for our church in that, with one another and with our elders. And I also want to tell you something else on behalf of all of our elders. Listen, we love you when you turn a deaf ear. And we love you just as much when you lack the boldness to do it. And we understand the struggle within the culture. Third, there is valid and substantiated criticism that is real. It happens, and when it does, you have a responsibility to guard the purity of the church and her leadership. And when you recognize there is an elder that is wrong and in sin, and you have um, substantiated people who are there with you, you have a responsibility to go to the plurality of those elders with that accusation. You are responsible to do that. Again, I know that's incredibly hard. 
But I can tell you from the word of God and from the heart of your elder, we appreciate and long for that level of accountability. That is how the church should function. And not one of us is above such a level of correction and accountability. Six, we'll go through the rest of these very quickly. Elders sin and some pursue sin. Elders are not perfect. We've acknowledged that. We are called to model maturity and pursue holiness. Doesn't mean we'll be perfect, but it means we can model those things with maturity and a pursuit of holiness. But sometimes elders fall. They develop strongholds in their life and they persist in sinning and this is never acceptable. These elders who are pursuing sin, number seven, require public rebuke. When an elder is in this public or this pursuing of sin, he should be brought before the church and publicly rebuked. Rebuke can lead to restoration, and that is the hope. Rebuke can also lead to excommunication, and that is the reality. But we as the church do not have the option to decide whether or not we will bring the elder before the church for public rebuke. We are commanded to. It is part of the responsibility. It is here. Number eight, rebuking an elder motivates others through fear. Listen, fear is a motivator. It's a motivator. It's not a popular thought, especially with millennials. Uh, But listen, the only way, motivation doesn't only come through encouragement. If you think that, you're not really reading the Bible. The Bible motivates from Old Testament through New Testament, and it uses fear. It's part of a motivation strategy that's in us. And by the way, you would never just motivate your children with just encouragement. You would never do that. And so the body is no different. Here's the truth. Fear is not a motivator designed to facilitate buy-in. It's not. Rather, it is a motivator designed to set boundaries. So here's the illustration. I probably speed a little bit, just a little. So I go down the interstate, speed limit 70, I might do 75. Do you know what keeps me from doing 120? It's not the fear of my safety. It's the fear of the consequence of the law if I'm pulled over. If I get a speeding ticket 5, 10 miles an hour over, I can live with that consequence. I cannot live with the consequence of like going to jail. So watch this. The boundary sets fear in me that helps set guidelines. Same thing in this context. When you see that the church is so serious about holiness and the pursuit of following Christ that it holds its leaders to a public accountability, and you see when they fall there will be a public correction and rebuke, it sets fear for the rest of those elders and for you. And that's healthy. Number nine, faithful elder leadership requires objectivity from the church. He says, keep these rules without prejudging and do nothing from partiality. When it comes to our elders, listen, we will develop favorites. It's just a reality. It's going to come through our relationships, through some styles. We're going to have those who we prefer more. And most preferences work around familiarity. So whoever you see the most probably becomes your favorite. Your elders understand this. We get that. We're okay with that. We encourage that. That's a great thing of the diversity of the giftedness that's there. 
I have that. Let me give you an example. I have that. Even aligned to the giftedness of each of our elders. If I have an important decision to make, you know who I go to first? Man, I'm picking up the phone. I'm calling David Brewer. I think David Brewer has great wisdom. I want to hear from him. Listen, if I want a sermon, listen, if I want a, like a sermon, I'm going to be honest. I, I prefer Paul. I love the way Paul teaches. I mean, he's just my guy. That's not a shot against Mike. It's not a shot against me. I'm just, there's a preference there. If I want someone to pray for me, I pick up my phone and I call Charles. If I want encouragement, I pick up my phone, I call Mike, I call Gene. Listen, if any of our other elders do those things, I'm like, oh, you're not good enough. You know, if, if Mike's preaching, like, I can't, I can't go there this morning. The Word of God just only speaks to me through Paul. That's just ridiculous. I'm not going to say any of that or do any of that. But I recognize that I have preferences, you have preferences, we have those things. But those things aren't primary. They're not primary. The blessings, these gifts, they're wonderful, but they cannot trump the truth of plurality. Our elders must be considered and measured without bias. So whether we're ordaining or honoring or rebuking or dismissing, we measure our elders beyond just the relational connection, beyond just our appreciation to their individual gift. And so we do this without prejudging, and we do nothing in partiality. Number 10, the church should be cautious when ordaining elders. Paul offers a few applications here of how. He says, don't be quick to appoint or ordain an elder. And by the way, don't just relationally say I'm so connected to them that you would follow them into sin. Listen, our, this is just a side note. Our friends lead us into more sin than the devil. We understand that, right? Our relationships can so tempt us to lead us into sin. That it is a powerful, powerful temptation in our lives. Even that much more so when there is authority associated with that. And so as we appoint new elders, we should be very slow and take our time. Verse 11, or point 11 kind of explains that further. Sin is not always quickly discerned. When we evaluate an elder or someone who's, who's saying, I, I'm, I'm called to do this. Our temptation is to look at them quickly and just discern. whether You qualified, you're not. You look good to me. Paul says, take your time, because our sins are not always immediately discernible. We are tempted to make too quick of a judgment, and this is something that should be avoided. Not only is this true with our sins, but it's also true with good works. Good works are also not always quickly discerned. Have you ever been around those people, when you meet them, you just don't really like them? I don't know what it is. You ever meet those people? You meet them and I'm just, you know, you come back first time you meet them, like, I don't like that guy. I feel like I'm that guy, but that's okay. Like, you know what I'm talking about? And then you hang out with that guy for whatever reason. You work with them, you're around. And after like six months a year, that person is one of your best friends. But your initial measurement of them was off. You, you, you didn't see quite the good. You didn't quite see their strengths. It took you a little while. That can also be true with those who are pursuing eldership. So I'm going to close with a few applications and walk through them quickly. They're listed in your notes. My prayer is that you would take them back this week, that you would discuss these things in your life groups, in your accountability, and that you would pursue these applications. Number one, affirm plurality. Number two, 
Honor your elders, especially those who proclaim well. Number three, pray for your elders. They labor against the forces of hell for your very souls. Number four, turn a deaf ear to unsubstantiated criticism and gossip while calling others to do the same. Number five, take substantiated claims of sin against an elder to the elders. Six, support and call for faithful church discipline, especially of an elder who has fallen. Number seven, fear the cost and discipline associated with sin. Number eight, treat your elders objectively in plurality. Number nine, take serious the ordination of elders and proceed with caution. And finally, number ten, do not rush to declare someone a leader. As we close, I want to read you a verse from Hebrews 13, 17, as the band comes up and leads us in a time of response. The author says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and pray with me. Lord, your word is good. Give us the wisdom and the faith to trust in your word above our traditions and above our culture, above our preference. Lord, give us the wisdom to pursue the application and submission of the authority that you have set in our lives. Father, I pray specifically for the elders of Tri-Cities Baptist Church. Lord, give them a heart and a love for you that is overwhelming. And give them a heart and a love for this people that exceeds faithfulness. Father, give the people of Tri-Cities Baptist Church a love and appreciation for their elders who serve them well. And may the governance and leadership of our church and our church's submission to it honor you in every aspect. And may it be an example of faithfulness that would change lives and draw people to you. I pray these things in the name of your son, in the name of Jesus. Amen.